This is How to Read. I'm Milan. And I'm Olivia, the producer of this episode. Today we're talking with Michaela Bronstein, a specialist in 20th century fiction as well as current TV. This episode is about the art of binging. For many people, binge-watching is a guilty pleasure. In the golden age of television, we might feel guilty because great TV shows deserve to be watched slowly and thoughtfully, not rushed through. If we're just watching for what happens next in the story, we'll probably miss out on subtler kinds of artistry. But Michaela Bronstein wants to defend binging and points out that people had similar worries a hundred years ago about the novel. Concerns about binge reading then and binge watching today reflect a shift from viewing each medium as just entertainment to viewing it as high art. Michaela Bronstein, welcome. Thanks for having me. So we are going to talk about binging and I'm curious to hear, well, I guess, first of all, like what are attitudes to binging today? Well, it depends on on what you're binging. And I got interested in the question of binging when I started reading people talk about binge watching TV. So reading articles in newspapers about how people go on a Breaking Bad bender and spend the entire weekend watching multiple seasons of the TV show Breaking Bad or Game of Thrones or any other TV show. And what interests me about it is that that's not how anybody talks about people reading books today. It's not how you would talk about if you went home and read all four Elena Ferrante novels. Yeah, it's true. In a, Nobody in talks a, about binging. Week, nobody would say that's a, a sort of a vaguely embarrassing or shameful binge experience. No, if uh, anything, that's quite kind of like, ooh, you're such an intellectual. Like, yeah, if you read. yeah. You'd sort of, you might, you, it might be a kind of humble brag, right? And uh, and the reason this was interesting to me is that that's not how people thought about reading a hundred years ago. Okay, uh, interesting. If you look back at the way people talk about the prospect of reading a novel quickly in the modernist period, in the sort of late 19th, early 20th century, they usually talk about it as the wrong way to read. So like reading quickly, reading all in one go, is that it's, it's, reading a novel quickly yeah. in a very condensed space of time? That's irresponsible reading. Um, okay. So... Uh, Cutie Levis, who's a sort of anthropologist of reading in the 1930s, but she actually compares reading to uh, the reading habit, she says, is now a form of the drug habit. Oh, wow. Um, so the sort of image of people desperate for their fix of plot. Which uh, is sort of how we think about binge watching TV today, right? Like there's, I feel like people talk about being like addicted, like yeah. there's something addictive or kind of compulsive that you just, especially with like Netflix, where you can just like click on the next episode right, immediately. Right, right, exactly. And, you know, one of the things that my students often cite when I'm talking about these issues is the shame that comes over them when Netflix flashes up the are you still watching message, which it does if you let it autoplay things for many hours in a row. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and the embarrassment is that you are in fact still watching, that you didn't just fall asleep. So I think what's going on with this sort of difference between how people talked about reading 100 years ago and how they talk about it today is that 
This anxiety about the speed with which people consume narrative is really associated with the moment at which people start thinking of a particular form as art. So uh, if you look at what happened to the novel 100 years ago, that's when the novel, in English at least, was sort of first starting to understand itself as an art form, something like poetry, rather than just popular entertainment. Okay, so so up to the end of the 19th century, the novel was being viewed as just entertainment? Mostly. I mean, we... Not we, high art. Yes, we now respect many of those individual works as great achievements, uh, great aesthetic achievements. But if you look at the popular discourse around the role that fiction might play in your life in the 19th century, it doesn't have the same esteem that poetry or painting does. Of course, by now today, fiction, or at least some kinds of fiction do have that status. Mm. And TV just went through roughly the same thing. Okay, so so the sort of worry about binge reading was, an, or like reading things too fast, reading things in a very short space of time, was that people then wouldn't be devoting the kind of like time and thoughtfulness to these novels that for the first time were being viewed as sort of like works of art that really merited like slowness and attention yeah the idea that slowness is the right kind of attention you stop to look at something carefully if you really value it so if you're moving quickly through it you must not really value it the best statement on this is from the novelist Vladimir Nabokov who says something like a good reader is a rereader he then goes on to say that? that the very act of learning what a novel is about stands in the way of aesthetic appreciation so what he means is that being in the process of reading, especially reading for the first time, gets in the way of really knowing what the kind of form of the work of art is. So if you're still learning what a novel is about, you can't actually appreciate it. So as you're going through it for the first time, you don't yet know all the things that are going to happen. Yes, and so you yeah. can't yet appreciate like it as a whole. Right? Yeah. That's the phrase. Yes. Yeah. 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 He says at one point that moving your eyes down the page is part of the problem. When you look at a painting, you don't have to move your eyes in a special way, which would be news to any of my colleagues in art history, who of course will talk at great length about how given works of art script the motion of your eyes around them. Um, but for him, the painting is the artwork that you glimpse all at once. Um, something like a sonnet, right? You can look at the whole thing on one page. Whereas novels, you have to go through that inconvenient, long process of learning what they're about. So is there a desire among these people in the sort of early 20th century? Is there a desire then to sort of like eradicate the time that novels take to read? Yes. Yeah, yeah, precisely. So one of the most influential early critics of the novel, it was a British scholar named Percy Lubbock, who wrote a book called The Craft of Fiction. And he argued that the time of reading was the big problem for the novel and the reason people hadn't appreciated it before, the reason it needed a special case to be made into high art. Because when you read, you can't grasp the whole and you're stuck trying to harmonize the idea that this is a crafted work that can stand in front of you as a whole, but also this sort of time that you can never remember, right? You're sort of, you're always forgetting exactly what you thought a few minutes earlier when you were reading and replacing it with what you think now. So so is there a particular novel from that period that really kind of encapsulates that changing status? So one of the figures I think about a lot in this regard is Virginia Woolf, who writes many spectacular novels, almost all of which are relatively short compared to the novels of an earlier generation. 
So if you think of something like Dickens, whose Bleak House I regularly teach and is something like 900 pages, most of Virginia Woolf's novels are between 150 and 250 pages. They're lyrical, they build up these imagery patterns that are best appreciated when you can stand back and look at the whole thing and see, oh, that image that showed up on page 5 reappeared on pages 50, 132, and on the last page of the novel. Virginia Woolf also wrote a fabulous essay in which she talks about how rereading novels is more important than the first time reading. And does she say it's because of this kind of like spotting of patterns or kind of in this appreciating the whole? So the essay is actually a review of Lubbock's book. So it's a little hard to sort out what's specific to her versus what she's doing in explaining his argument. So um, Lubbock's The Craft of Fiction yeah, that you mentioned yeah. earlier. Yes, yeah. exactly. But she evokes very beautifully the pleasures of first-time reading, but then says, uh, the phrase is, to rush it breathlessly through does very well for a beginning, but that is not the way to read finally. Hmm. Um, and the other... And the idea that like a first reading is a rushed one and that then later readings would be less rushed. Yes, would be slower, more appreciative. Um, should we check on this tea? Sure. I feel like it yeah. probably is going to be <laughs> brewed for enough time. Thank you. Yeah, so, because one of the things, I mean, one of the things binge reading seems to be, well, one thing, one of the things that's kind of characteristic of binge reading is that you do watch or read something all in one go. And yet what you're saying is because binge reading, binge viewing is also very fast, that's the thing that was kind of worrying these people um, at the start of the 20th century with these these novels. Yeah. The reason the binge discourse is so fascinating to me is because it almost always clusters around works that are perceived as good works, right? So the problem is not that you're watching Breaking Bad rather than a better show. The problem is that you're watching a good show the wrong way. The same with the novel. Tolstoy is one of Lubbock's examples you have people who are reading Tolstoy the wrong way rather than the right way. Um, it's not they I mean, should be reading are, something like, different. I mean, those are like War and Peace, famously a very, very long novel. <laughs> yeah, right, right, exactly. So, yeah. Um, and, uh, so would Lubbock have wanted people to read that super slowly or read it in installments? Like what? So Lubbock doesn't prescribe a particular speed of reading. What he wants you to do is think about War and Peace in a way that is only available to you when you are flipping back and forth in a leisurely fashion through it. So reading On a to find reading. Yeah, yeah. Not reading to find out what happens next in a hurry, not reading because you really care about the protagonist, but sort of trying to appreciate it as a constructed work of art and how the different parts of it are put together. That's the kind of reading he likes. So the thing about binging is that it's actually associated with good works of art. Works of art the critics want to praise, but it's a sort of gatekeeping around the right kind of access to them. Which is why I think the novel today, when people talk about binging, you know, praiseworthy novels today, they don't have any anxiety associated with it because the novel's status is so insecure, right? We're just excited that people are spending their weekends reading Elena Ferrante um, or Tolstoy or whomever, whereas TV has vast numbers of viewers. So people want to make sure it's appreciated in the right way. Yeah, well, and, and we sort of people talk about being in the golden age of television. So there's an idea of it being this really sort of like reaching a certain kind of like artistic status that it didn't have before. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, 
Should we move on to TV then? Yeah, sure. Um, so are there particular shows where you feel like the discussion about binging has been like particularly intense? So I mentioned Breaking Bad and Breaking Bad really is the linchpin show for the historical moment when people started talking a lot about binge watching as a phenomenon because its appearance coincided with the widespread availability of streaming online. And so suddenly it's much easier to binge watch TV when what you're doing is just clicking next on an online interface as opposed to at least having to get a new physical DVD. Well, uh, yeah, I remember the era of box sets. Yes, and exactly. And Breaking Bad is also infamously a sort of cliffhanger plot machine. Almost every episode ends with a cliffhanger. You're supposed to want to watch the next episode immediately. And of course, that's designed to work for serial airing, where you have it show up on a particular day of the week, and then for the next week, everybody who watches it is supposed to wonder together how, how Walt is going to get out of this one. But it also works equally well for a binging experience where you can actually find out immediately what's going to happen. So it sounds like you're a defender of binging. Um, what, like, can you make a pitch for why binging can actually be valuable? So there's a critic named Peter Brooks who wrote a book called Reading for the Plot several decades ago in which he talks about how plot is often disdained as an element of literature. He says plot is why we read Jaws, not why we read Henry James. And Where Jaws is seen as something like trashy. Yes. And yeah, Henry James yeah, is uh, high art. And Henry James is high art in this, in this little schema. And I think that he, he really captured something with that that's still very much alive in our imagination of, of how narrative works as art, particularly surrounding reading, less so surrounding TV. But this idea that trying to find out what happens next is a low form of consumption is a really old one. And... I think that binging is almost always associated with first-time reading. And we think of first-time reading as reading for the plot, reading to find out what, what happens, happens next. next yeah. We think of people as reading disposable mystery novels or romance novels once and then moving on. We think about art as that which stands up to rereading. So we have all of these little cultural assumptions built into the idea that first-time reading is the wrong kind of reading. And binging is first-time reading at its most pure. Just, you know, trying to find out what happens next, trying to figure out the mystery or or discover the fate of a character. And also what you're saying about the kind of the fastness of it, like what happens next. You're just wanting to like race through each yeah. plot point. Yeah, but, but many novels, I think, want you to be excited to find out what happens next. They want you to be curious about what's going to happen to the characters. And I think that part of understanding how they work as art is understanding how and why they make you curious about that or make you want to find that out and how that curiosity affects your experience. Hmm. Um, sort like of there's an art to yeah. kind of creating suspense and yes. drawing people through. And to misdirect you, right? There's a lot yeah. of things that aren't very much fun if you can see through every red herring ahead of time. Yeah, um, well, like mysteries especially, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. So this is not necessarily advocacy that you should always force yourself to read fast if that doesn't bring you pleasure. But so many of the novels that we love and the novels that we respect as great literature are ones that seem to encourage you to rush them breathlessly through in Wolf's phrase. Yeah. So it sounds like 
you know, there's things that you might miss through binging, but there's also things that you might be more attuned to in the like art of a novel or of a TV show. Yeah, exactly. Binging doesn't necessarily need to be this inconvenient thing that gets you to your later, greater aesthetic understanding. Well, Michaela Brunstein, thank you very much. Thank you. That's it for this episode. For links to books mentioned in our discussion, plus further reading, visit our website, howtoreadpodcast.com. You can also listen to two bonus clips, one of Michaela discussing how people read novels differently when they were published in serial installments, and another about why Mad Men is a bad show to binge. To hear about our latest episodes and news, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, at howtoreadnow. This episode was produced by me, Milan Talunen. And by me, Olivia Branscombe. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. Special thanks to Columbia University for its support, and thank you for listening.